So it'll be Romans 4, 1 through 3. Again, this is the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Rome. Chapter 4, here we go. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You may be seated. Thanks, Josh. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, delighted to open God's word with you. Let's take a moment and let's pray before we dive in. Father, um, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it instructs us and corrects us and rebukes us. It trains us toward righteousness. God, thank you that these words are, are breathed out by you and they're for our good. Give us ears to hear um, something that is so good that it's really difficult to believe. Give us faith, we pray. In Jesus' good name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we sang a song just a moment ago that is, uh, as Matthew said, uh, probably the most well-known hymn in uh, sort of Christian history, at least that we know of, is Amazing Grace. And it's not just well-known, it's well-loved. This is everybody's favorite Christian song for the most part. Uh, People who aren't even Christians uh, have heard this song, they know this song. Um, It's a significant song. It was written by John Newton. Uh, John Newton was a slave trader who became a Christian and ended up then becoming a pastor and obviously wrote songs like this. And here's a look at at John Newton's gravestone, uh, which he said, this is what I want written on my gravestone when I die. Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That wasn't theoretical for John Newton, it was real. And those words have just become absolutely powerful. Uh, One of Newton's biographers estimates that that song is performed over 10 million times a year in the United States. And not just in church, in all sorts of Uh, different settings. Uh, A lot of different uh, recording artists have recorded albums and performed it live. Uh, List includes Joan Baez, Aretha Franklin, Rod Stewart, Johnny Cash, Elvis, of course, uh, Willie Nelson, Destiny's Child uh, recorded this, and U2, right? So that's a pretty diverse, that's a pretty broad group of of musicians. Um, You know something has hit a, a chord in popular culture when it shows up on The Simpsons, and uh, Amazing Grace has been on The Simpsons. It's been in Star Trek. There's a, in the Superman comics, there's a, a character called Amazing Grace. And it was even played at Woodstock. Were any of you at Woodstock? Some of you uh, can remember those days. Amazing Grace, it's everybody's favorite hymn. We love that song. Maybe it was sung at your wedding or maybe at a funeral of a loved one or... Maybe it's just the song that for whatever, I mean, it's just, it's just a beautiful thing. We love that song, but we don't believe it. Boy, is that a great song, but we don't really think it's true. See, we hear a song like that and we go, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, wouldn't that be incredible if, if God could save a wretch like me? But, but the reality is, the, the way we truly think, the way we actually function is 
We believe things like what goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. You reap what you sow. That's what we believe. Because, yeah, we believe that song, and we like that song, and that's great, but, but really, I mean, we are American capitalists, right? Those who work hard should get paid and be rewarded for it. Those who don't, shouldn't. Or we love the, the rags-to-riches story, the person that pulled themselves up out of desperate circumstances, and, and now they've accomplished something. They've worked hard. They're rewarded. They should be. We love it. And the person who hasn't worked very hard or who's kind of lazy and the idea of them getting welfare or them getting assistance, just it's like, come on, do something, work hard. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. You get what you deserve because that's what we really believe. Well, Paul's readers were really no different. We're studying here this letter by the Apostle Paul who had a story very similar, actually, to John Newton's. the Apostle Paul labored to destroy the Christian faith, and God interrupted that and showed him grace. And he's writing this letter to the Romans. In the very first part of it, for, for a number of months, we looked at chapters 1 through 3, where Paul makes a very elaborate case that humanity is sinful and wicked and lost apart from God's intervening grace. There's nothing they can do. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing we can do to merit God's favor because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it says in chapter 3, verse 23. But then he comes with good news of amazing grace. Look at chapter 3, verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, we've got to define some words here. We've fallen short of the glory of God, but we're justified. So, so we are made right with God. That's what the word justified means. It, it, another way to think about it is just as if you'd never sinned. That's what it is to be justified, to, to be accepted by God, to be brought in, not just to have your sins expunged, but to be welcomed into God's presence. Because of our sin, we've been separated from a holy God. But This verse says that we can be justified, brought in, made right with God by his grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor. Right? Grace interrupts all that as you reap, so you sow stuff. It says you get what you don't deserve. That's grace. So you you get made right with God by grace, it says, as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Now, redemption, again, is a big word, but it has the idea of of rescue, of deliverance, of someone going out of slavery and into freedom. And Jesus Christ, on the cross, died in our place so that we could be rescued from our condition of sin into a condition of new life. And so Paul comes in this book and says, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I mean, that's, that's what he comes. And the readers would read this and go, wow, that is good news. But I don't know if I really believe that. I mean, after all, what goes around comes around. And you get what you deserve. You reap what you sow. Right? Don't your works have something to do with this? Right? Isn't there something you can boast about? Paul's answer was no. Verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You don't get to boast because you didn't give the gift. You just received it, right? The giver gets the glory is what we looked at last week. So so Paul's readers are in the same place as us. 
They marvel at something like amazing grace, just like we do. But deep down, they really go, are you sure? That doesn't feel right. And, and, and this is true whether you come from a religious background or not, right? Every other religion in the world teaches this idea of you get what you deserve, you reap what you sow, be a good person so God will accept you. So, so if you grew up in that kind of a mentality, for sure you have this. But, but this is just the natural air we breathe as people. It's the default setting of our human heart. And so Paul is going back in chapter 4 to say, I know this sounds amazing, and I know this sounds crazy, and I know that you just don't really have a slot for this, but i got to show you, this is how it's always been. This idea that you're saved by grace, you're justified, you're made right with God by grace, through faith, not from works, that is not new, Paul's saying. Paul's saying this is how it's always been. And he goes back, interestingly, to the father of Judaism, the father of Christianity, interestingly also the, 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 the main forefather as you trace the lineage of what eventually became Islam, he goes to Abraham. And so chapter 4 is going to be Paul using the story of Abraham as an example to say this idea of grace that's amazing, I know you have a hard time believing it, but this is how it's always been. Abraham. Now, Abraham is an interesting example because the Jews thought that Abraham had earned his way into God's favor, right? They had very much a sense, and again, not, I don't, it's not like every single Jew necessarily thought that way, but, but the dominant sort of cultural narrative that the Jews had as they read the Bible was good people get good, get good things happen to them, bad people have bad things happen to them. This is why in the story of Job, when you read about Job, who experienced all this suffering, his friends come, and what do they say? Well, bad stuff happened to you. Clearly, you're guilty for something, right? That was the, that was the narrative. That's the way they thought, and, and there were all these sort of scholars and rabbinical people who sort of elevated Abraham. He was the father of the, the faith, and you know how with the founding fathers of, of this country, right? There's a lot that you read, and some of it you go, is that really true, right? Because the status just gets so elevated even beyond what's probably reality, and that had happened there too. So Paul is going to come, and he's going to say, let's look at Abraham. You think he earned it, but in fact, he, he is just another example of someone that received amazing grace. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh. Another way to say this is, what do we think? Did Abraham earn this? Did, did, was something gained by him according to his flesh? Did he really work hard and that's why he was made right with God? Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Saying if, if you subscribe to this idea that you can be made right with, good, with God by being good, by being moral, by avoiding bad stuff, doing good stuff, reading the Bible, prayer, giving to the poor, getting engaged in the orphan crisis, whatever it is. You think all that stuff is going to merit you something. What Paul's saying in verse 2 is a lot of people will go, wow, look at you. You're generous. You're devout. You're committed. Right? Even church culture will really reward you. Right? All the pastors and leaders will go, that's our kind of person. They work hard. But, but, but notice what he says, but not before God. That's all great. 
People are impressed, but it doesn't impress God. The gap is too big. You can't, you can't close the gap by a few measly good works when your whole life has been a life of being separated from God by sin. So then Paul says this in verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Now, this is an important and interesting point that Paul makes, just even in asking that question. Because these Jews had heard a lot. There was a lot of sort of fable and a lot of stories and a lot of, you know, kind of things that had gotten exaggerated, and they believed Abraham earned it. And Paul's going, well, that's great. You've heard all that, but what does the Bible say? And I just want to say to you here, especially those of you who are sort of exploring Christianity and trying to figure this out, listen, you can hear all kinds of opinions about this thing. You can ask friends, you can ask family, you can Google stuff, you can find any opinion you want. And a lot of times what we do when we ask that is we're not looking for truth, we're looking for affirmation. We just want someone to affirm what we already think. And what I want to challenge you to do is to go, what does the scripture say? Right? And, and that's why even as, as I preach, my intention here is not to go, well, here's what I think. It's to go, here's what the scripture says. And so Paul says, That's great, you've heard all this about Abraham, but think about it for a moment. What does the scripture say? What does it actually say? There's a passage in the book of Acts, chapter 17, where they encounter these folks called the Bereans, this group of people, and it says the Bereans were more noble because when they heard what was preached, they went and they looked it up in the scripture to see if that was actually true. What does the scripture say, Paul says? Here's what it says. And here he's quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What was gained by Abraham? By his works? Nothing. That's not what made him righteous, Paul says. Go look at the scripture. Go look at it. And what you'll see is Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him. It was credited to him by grace. It was given to him righteousness. That's what he's saying. And so we're going to unpack this more in the coming weeks, exactly sort of what this means to be counted as righteous. We'll look at this a little bit today, but because we're going to look for the next number of weeks at this example of Abraham, I want to make sure we get a little bit familiar with his story, okay? So so I want you to turn in your Bible um, back to uh, Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. I, I didn't look up the page number Um, But if you've got one of the black hardcover Bibles, just start at the beginning. Genesis is the first book, and just turn it until you get to a big uh, number 11. Actually, really, until you get almost to chapter 12. What we're told at the end of chapter 11 is that there's this family, there's this group of people. Terah is the father, and and Abram, uh, who later, you know, his name is changed to Abraham, same guy, is uh, one of the sons of Terah. And uh, Abram is married. He's married to a lady named Sarah. And Sarah, it tells us in Genesis 11, verse 30, it says Sarah was barren. She had no child. So she wanted to conceive, wanted to be pregnant. Hadn't happened at that point. Now that's going to become important to this story. So we don't know a lot about Abram. We get a little bit of background uh, here in, in Genesis 11, 31. Look at that. It says, Terah, that's again uh, Abram's father, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. I know it's a lot of names, just hang in there. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans 
to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. So they're in Ur of the Chaldeans. That would be uh, kind of what became Babylon, uh, what, be, what would be like modern-day Iraq. And they wanted to, to take a journey. They wanted to move down into what would be like Jerusalem, Palestine, that sort of area. And, but they get stopped along the way. And so they don't, they don't quite make it. Um, and they're, they're from this land of Ur. And uh, kind of out of nowhere, in chapter 12, verse 1, God speaks to Abram. And this is significant. This is a history-changing moment here in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Take a look at it. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is interesting, because in chapter 11 we read that the people had tried to make the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. They didn't want to scatter throughout the earth. They didn't want to fill the earth. They didn't want to bless the earth. And yet God now is coming in chapter 12 and saying, I can make your name great. Abram, I'm going to make your name great, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this raises an an interesting and, I think, important question of why did God pick Abraham? We didn't read anything about it, did we? Why him? Well, the assumption might be, well, you know, God probably looked down and said, Abram's my kind of guy. I need a guy like that. He's righteous. I'm going to pick a righteous man to start my thing with. But the text doesn't say that. Here's what one commentator says about this. It says, the Chaldeans, who Abraham was descended from, the Chaldeans were polytheistic, having a multitude of gods, the foremost of which was called Nana, the moon god. Because his father, Terah, was an idolater, Abraham obviously was reared in paganism. When God called Abraham, or Abram, which was his original name, he gave no reason for selecting that pagan from the millions of others in the world. Nowhere in Scripture is the reason given. God chose Abraham because that was his divine will, which needs no justification or explanation. Do you get what he's saying? Why did God pick Abram? Because he wanted to. Why? Why? I don't know. Grace. I get this. Abram was reared in paganism, moon worship, worshiping all kinds of gods. It's not like Abraham was this great truth seeker and boy, he was so close to God and said, okay, I'll I'll have you. No. There are millions of pagans. God goes, I want you. Why? Grace. Grace. So even in his original calling, it's not because Abraham's earned any righteousness, it's just grace. Well, then you kind of go, okay, well, what happened? Surely from there, Abraham began to, you know, live really righteously, and that's why God used him a lot, right? Well, not exactly. What does the Scripture say? Remember, God had said, go from your country, go from your kindred here, leave all your family behind, and go into this land. Does Abraham do that? Kinda. 
Look at verse 4. So Abram went. Okay, that's good. It's obedience. As the Lord had told him. Oh, good. He's our guy. And Lot went with him. All right, Lot's his nephew. What was the command? Leave your kindred. Leave your father's house. Go. So, so, So at best, what we have here from Abraham is like kind of obedience. Kind of doing the right thing. Then we get to the end of chapter 12, and and it gets a little worse. There's a famine in the land, and so Abram and Sarah, they go to Egypt to try to get some food, and and Sarah's beautiful, and, and, you know, Abram is worried that that, that if she's beautiful that he'll be considered a threat, and so he says, well, let's lie about it. Let's tell him that you're my sister, which actually, if you look at the genealogies, they were kind of like a West Virginia thing. They were kind of (laughs) sisters and brothers. But he leaves out, we're married. Ladies, how would you like it if you, you know, at the next sort of company party, hi, this is my sister. I want you to meet, what? what? Right? And so he lies about that. And, and again, by God's grace, God does some stuff in Egypt to make them go, wait, this guy's a problem. And, and so he's sort of rescued from that sin. But, but it's not a record of perfect obedience at all. At best, it's, it's incomplete then you get into chapter 13, and, and there's this tension and challenges uh, with Abram and Lot. Uh, you know, they separate. And then, verse, and then chapter 14, Abram has to go rescue Lot, right? You see that there's these consequences of not fully obeying the Lord. But again, it just makes the point that, that Abraham's obedient, kind of. Then you get to chapter 15, and this is where Paul is quoting. Paul is quoting from chapter 15, verse 6. And so you go, okay, well, here's where Abram's going to show that he's really righteous. He's really the best guy, right? And so you sort of expect, okay, that's what's going to happen. Is that what happens? What does the Scripture say? 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now listen, a perfectly righteous Abraham, the kind that can earn God's favor, would at that point go, God, I know. You're my shield. Say no more. But that's not what Abraham does. Ah, God, but, you know, you told me that I was going to have a son. I was going to, you know, have all these descendants. I don't have any. Verse 3. Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Right? So even, even there, he's that, I mean, it's great that he can talk to God and have, has enough faith at least to interact with God. That's good. But he, doesn't, he still doesn't fully trust him, right? Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them so shall your offspring be. God says, I'm going to deliver on my promise. Trust me. Verse 6, and this is what Paul quotes, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Let this encourage those of you who think you don't have enough faith, your faith isn't pure enough or it's not strong enough or it's not good enough. The, the, the question is not the quality of your faith or the quantity of your faith. It's the object of your faith. Abraham believed God. 
Was it the purest faith? No. Was it the strongest faith? Clearly not, because Abraham later is going to take matters into his own hands again. But it was real faith in the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. So do you see what's going on? Was Abraham chosen because he was righteous? No. Well, didn't Abraham live really righteously before that promise? No. Well, but, but then God makes a covenant with him, and didn't Abram like, have a lot to do with that? Surely he was really involved there, right? No. As you read the rest of chapter 15, what you see is God says, I want to make a covenant with you. Get a bunch of animals, prepare them. And, uh, and then in chapter 15, verse 12, it tells us that Abraham is knocked out with sleep. Verse 12, the sun, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So, so they're about to have this like commitment covenant ceremony, and Abraham's conked out. And, and the way this ceremony worked is that they were to cut the, the animals in half. So this was a big, bloody mess, right? The animals would be cut in half and laid sort of on, on each side. And the two parties making a covenant would walk through the middle of those pieces. And the symbolism there was to say, may the fate of this animal be my fate if I break this covenant. If I break this covenant, may I be torn apart like this animal has been. And so typically the two parties would sort of walk hand in hand through this thing, make this covenant. Well, when you read chapter 15, verse 17, look at this. See how much Abraham has to contribute to this while he's asleep. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So God is the one making this covenant. God has called Abram by grace. God has sustained Abram through his foolish decisions by grace. God is continuing his covenant by grace. Apart from Abraham's perfect obedience, apart from his works, even apart, as we'll see in chapter 17, from his circumcision. Right? Paul's going to come to that because the Jews would have said, circumcision, well, that's a big deal. That earns you something. Well, circumcision, notice, the, 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 he's counted righteous in 15. Circumcision doesn't happen until 17. Paul's going to get to that in the coming weeks. But you get the idea? Justification has always been by grace, through faith, not works. Always. That's how it's always been. So let's look at this statement of Genesis 15, Romans 4.3. You can look at it in either place if you want. It basically says the same thing. Genesis, or Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This really is this key idea, and, and Paul's going to flesh it out in more detail in the coming weeks, but, but let's focus on this phrase. Abraham believed God. His, his trust was not in himself at that moment. He'd given up arguing, okay, God, I trust you. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That word counted, uh, one translation translates it as credited. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. The King James says he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteous. It's the idea of it, it's counted toward you, it's counted as if it was something that you had done. 
So imagine that right now your, your cell phone started to ding. And I know you all have it off because you want to be quiet in the service. But imagine just for a second that, that it wasn't off and that you got an alert from your bank that millions of dollars had been put in your account. First, you'd probably be scared. Like, I didn't steal this. They're going to, right? But, but what you would know is I didn't earn that, right? It wasn't like I worked hard. It wasn't like I even bought a lotto ticket. Like, I did nothing and this money just shows up. It was counted to you. It was credited to you. This is the idea. Theologians call this imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. We'll talk more about other kinds of righteousness and things in the coming weeks. But I want to make sure you understand what, it, what is being communicated here. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. It wasn't that Abraham was righteous. And it wasn't even that his faith was like, oh, wow, that's really good faith. No, no, no. He looked at God and said, God, I trust you. And it was counted to him, reckoned to him, credited to him as if he actually had it. So think about it this way. My oldest daughter, is, uh, Abby, is seven years old and has a number of kind of household chores and things like that. And we love to go see movies and things like that. So imagine that one day I say to her in the morning, I say, Abby, Listen, uh, one of her jobs is to unload the dishwasher. If I say, Abby, if the dishwasher is empty when I get home, we're going to a movie. Sound good? Yeah, great. And then Abby runs off, and she plays, and she does school, and she kind of has her day and whatever, and, and I go off to work. And, you know, and Abby intends to do it, and she wants to, but, you know, she's really creative, and she sort of likes to think of imaginary things and read stories and have all kinds of fun. And so she gets lost in this sort of world, and, and, and we call it Planet Abbey. And, um, and so she's on Planet Abbey all day, and I come home from work, and I hear her off in the playroom. She's playing, and I look at the dishwasher, and it's full. And I hear her playing, and I told her, if, if the dishwasher's empty, we'll go to the movie. You know what I'm going to do? I start to empty the dishwasher. So I empty it, and I empty it, and finally it's empty. And I then go back into the playroom, and I say, Abby, we going to the movies? Did you empty the dishwasher? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I meant to, I wanted to, I just forgot. I didn't get around to it. I can do it now. Uh, I guess we can't go. And then I say, good news. What I told you was, if the dishwasher's empty, we'll go to the movies. The dishwasher's empty, because I emptied it. And my emptying the dishwasher counts for you. Get in the car, let's go. That is imputed righteousness. All we do is go, oh, we blew it. Oh, we forgot. Oh, I didn't do it. Oh, I sinned. Oh, I... We want to make it up real fast. No, God says, no, I did it for you. I took care of it. It's empty, right? The standard is be perfectly righteous and you can be in relationship with me. Well, we're not. Okay, then God says, I'll make you that way through Jesus because Jesus always emptied the dishwasher. Jesus always did the right thing. Jesus didn't do all that was written about in Romans 1 through 3. And so God can say, all right, here's the deal. You get the millions of dollars that Jesus earned, credited to your account. 
He gets the debt and the foreclosures and the bad credit. He gets all of that on him. And he paid that on the cross. This is so significant. Right? This is not earned righteousness. This is not achieved righteousness. This is imputed righteousness. As if you were righteous. Counted to you. That is amazing grace. You didn't start it, and you can't continue it. It's his gift from first to last, not a result of work so that no one would boast. Is that amazing grace? But we, yeah, you can clap for that. Do you, do you believe it? Like, really? See, some of you, you're newer to this, or... You know, maybe you've sort of heard the gospel message like that, and you go, you know, it just sounds too good to be true. And the saying, if it sounds too good to be true, probably is. I just don't know. i got to do something. I mean, that feels like the easy way out. You're saying I don't have to do anything? Yeah, that's what we're saying. I don't know. I'd like to believe that. I just, I don't know. And then the others of you are more like me where you, you have heard this and, and even believed it, and if, you, you know, if we gave you a test about how can a person be made right with God, you would pass, right? If it was like, can a person be made right with God by, by volunteering a lot? No. <laughs> Attending church? No. Right? You just would like, be breezing through this test. No, no, no. How can a person be right with God? By trusting Jesus. Any other way? No. Right? You, just, you got it. You ate 100% on the justification by grace through faith test. But in reality, you still feel like you got to do something. And, and you go, okay, well, God wiped my slate clean, but I got to do, I got to, like, he, he emptied the dishwasher for me this one time, but like, now I got to do it from now on. No. Right? And so, so, so many of us, we, if, if I said, we're, Picture God's face. God wants to see you. What's his face look like? So many of us it would be a scowl. Or at least some sort of, I'm so disappointed in you. Right, and perhaps you had a parent you could never please, and so you just project all that onto God, and I get that, that makes sense why you do it. But that's not how God is. Because you didn't start it by your works, you can't continue it by your works. And so the idea of like, well, I had a really good week. I was really faithful. I was really obedient. So now I'm confident. Now I'm bold. Why? It, it wasn't because of you. You don't come in here and get to sing to God and get to celebrate communion and get to be with other people and be encouraged from God's word because you've earned it. It's by grace. It starts by grace. It continues by grace. It's always by grace through faith apart from works. Always. And so, whether you're not yet a Christian, or even if you are, we have a hard time believing it. And I think part of the reason why Christians, people who pass the justification by faith exam, one of the reasons why Christians look so much like the world is because we're all living out 
what we really believe in our hearts, which is what goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. You reap what you sow. Can you imagine if as followers of Christ we believed this, even imperfectly, and we began to live out of that, that God accepts me, that I can approach him boldly, that I can tell other people about him even if I don't have it all together. In fact, having it all together, not having it together might even give me more credibility and, and instead of having to posture and pretend and, and, and plastic and fake my way through everything, I can be real because God's seen me at my worst and he still loves me. Can you imagine the joy that would bring into your life? Can you imagine the boldness that would bring to our witness? Can you imagine how, how much that would change the perceptions of people who think they got us figured out? You know why they think they got us figured out? Because you know how so many Christians live? You're not good. Therefore, God's going to get you. That's not the gospel. That's religion. That's, that's the default setting. Listen, you wake up every day, and your, your heart hard drive goes back to its default setting. And every day, you've got to download the update again, the gospel update. You go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's not what goes around comes around. It's not I get what I deserve. It's, it's counted to me as righteousness by grace through faith. That's how it's always been. Hope you'll come back in these next few weeks. We're going to continue to explore the significance of what that means in chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you that it's so unmerited and so generous and all we would do is just look to you and say, you've done and you can do what we can't. So God, even that faith is a gift. I pray you'd give it to us now. Allow us to trust you. Allow us to believe this. We ask in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke. So now we get to respond. I mean, there's a way to respond no matter where you are with Jesus. So the first thing we're going to do is we're